From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As investigators search for answers after a deadly attack in a Boulder grocery store, a customer shares how employees helped guide people to safety and reflects on the many what-ifs. I keep saying that if I had chosen to get some ice cream, then I might have been like directly in the line of fire. Because that was on that side of the store, I just changed my mind and decided not to. We'll also talk about processing the trauma, both direct and indirect, that comes from a shooting like this. Also today, the expanded child tax credit. We'll ask Colorado's Democratic Senator Michael Bennett why he thinks it will be a game changer. It's the biggest reduction of childhood poverty in the history of the United States. And I think it's evidence, it's demonstration that we don't have to accept things the way they are. Hi, I'm Allison Sherry from CPR News. Every day, I aggressively seek out the most important criminal justice news in the state and deliver it to you with context. I'm thankful that you value responsible fact-based journalism that gives you insight on how Colorado's justice system works. You'll rely on CPR to keep you informed about what's happening in all parts of the state. Today, I'm asking you to make this reporting possible. Please donate at CPR.org. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. A shooting at a King Supers grocery store in Boulder on Monday afternoon left 10 people dead. One of them was a police officer who responded to the scene. Before the attack began, Ryan Borowski stopped in to buy some chips and soda. He was near the self-checkout. Then I heard one shot and thought it was... An employee dropped something, and then before that thought even crossed my mind, another shot. And after the second shot, I was turned and running up the aisle, and, you know, I saw somebody's panicked face coming towards me, and I turned and ran, and it it seemed like a team effort, you know. Everybody was, everybody that I was with, you know, whether it was a dozen people or two dozen people, I'm not sure, but... We know we communicated just really quickly, gun, 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 run, run, run. Everybody kind of had like a hand on another person. You know, somebody had a hand on my back. I had my hand on somebody's back and we got into the back storage room and the employees needed to be told. So we were like, there's a guy with a gun, you know, run. And there were customers who were running into dead ends, essentially, into, like, storage rooms. And the employees were like, no, come this way. So we ran out the back door through the loading, the receiving bay, and I called the police, and that was at 2.32. Borowski was so shaken, he walked home about 10 miles. It was about a two and a half hour walk. I ran some of it. Uh, I screamed in some tunnels, um, just for a nice echoing effect. I've just been actually really weird, I think. Some verge of tears here and there when people talk to me and, you know, are kind to me and offer me a ride home, and I just felt like I needed to walk home. He's also been meditating as a way to cope. Borowski says his mind keeps running over one small choice. He almost bought ice cream. I just changed my mind and decided not to. I keep saying that if I had chosen to get some ice cream, then I might have been like directly in the line of fire because that was on that side of the store. 
Boulder police took a suspect into custody Monday afternoon. They identified him and the victims at a press conference this morning. Police say it will take days to complete an investigation, and authorities have offered little information about possible motives. Rick Ginsburg of Denver is a licensed psychologist and former president of the Colorado Psychological Association. Rick, I want to welcome you to the show this morning. Thanks for having me on, Avery. In a mass shooting, the trauma ripples out from families who are directly affected or responded to the scene, to friends and family, to lots of folks who watch this unfold on the news or social media. How do you respond when people discount their own feelings of fear or pain because somebody else has experienced something worse? One of the things that mental health clinicians are, are trained to do and understand is that Pain is not really a relative experience. Um, everybody experiences pain and suffering and trauma in their own way. And um, it's, not, it's not really useful for any of us to try to compare that to anyone else's. Uh, we're all sort of struggling through uh, distress and trauma when we hear about things like this horrible and senseless uh, shooting and, and other tragedies. And so really need to try to take care of ourselves, attend to our own emotions, and um, understand what our own distress is as we as we go forward and, and, and try to be kind and gentle to ourselves. There are also lots of layers of association here. Just last week, there was a shooting in Georgia where eight people were killed, six of them women of Asian descent. I saw people post on Twitter yesterday about how this made them think of school shootings in Colorado, that they or their children had survived. What can you share about the ways that this event can bring up past trauma, even for people who didn't directly witness a shooting? What we know about trauma is that it does tend to trigger experiences that we've had either directly or indirectly uh, that were similar or scary. And our central nervous system doesn't really differentiate between uh, necessarily what is happening now and some of the things that have happened in the past. So it's really common for um, people to re-experience traumatic events when one uh, particular incident occurs. And when somebody is thinking about the incident, they're being exposed to media about it, it, it strikes a similar chord with other things. And so uh, psychologically, what people can experience is just this wave of emotion. Uh, sometimes that has built up a tidal wave of emotion that is built up on um, these uh, previous traumas, and then it all kind of comes crashing down on them, and their psyche and their their um, psychological state really needs to try to deal with that. So it can be pretty overwhelming for folks. How important is it for people to be self-aware right now about how the news of the shooting is affecting them? Uh, it, it's so important. I think all of us um, in uh, throughout the course of, uh, throughout the United States as well as the world, currently, I think what's important for us to understand is that we're all experiencing a certain degree of societal trauma period because of um, the COVID nineteen pandemic. And uh, um, oftentimes what we what we see is that, people get habituated to stressful events. So they get used to those stressful events. They persevere through them and they don't really know how much it's affecting them psychologically. So so the, the first thing I'd like to say is that um, so many of us have experienced incredible trauma and 
distress based on the pandemic alone. Now, on top of that, people are experiencing um, the fear and the uncertainty about getting out in the world. And that is compounded, of course, by these sorts of terrible events that happen. Um, um, and they seem to happen, uh, sometimes happen in succession. So it's important for people to uh, understand what their own limits are about um, intaking all of that uh, information about the the traumas and the events and really try to moderate that so that they are um, psychologically aware um, of what's happening for them and, and not overwhelmed. And what can people do to take care of themselves right now other than, of course, limiting that information and that intake? All of the normal uh, coping mechanisms that uh, people use should be turned up a couple of notches. And I like to tell people that uh, if if you're thinking about um, engaging in some sort of stress reduction or an anxiety reduction regimen of any type, whether that's something that directly affects um, anxiety or whether that's something indirect that um, just allows you to relax, uh, now's the time to do it. Um, I think when these sorts of events happen, we are really searching and yearning for those types of activities. So that can be anything from exercise to meditation to talking with a friend, or if things are more severe and you really need some assistance um, from someone professional, seeking out some professional help, um, going online and finding um, highly qualified clinicians who can assist you with the distress that you're experiencing. And for many in the Boulder community, the King Supers, where the shooting took place, is their regular grocery store. What advice do you have for people who are feeling uneasy now about safety in places that they go routinely? I think the first thing I would say is that having some apprehension, anything from apprehension to some trepidation to outright fear of going out into the um, the world and, and to... Um, places that you might visit regularly is really normal in these sorts of situations. And it can, um, it can range from anything uh, from psychologically feeling a little bit more irritable to feeling some muscle tension to actually being short of breath and having something that feels like a panic attack or an outright panic attack. Um, so the first advice that I think clinicians give people is to really be aware of what it is that they're experiencing physically mm. as well as emotionally. And then to, um, and to uh, then take your time exposing yourself to these new situations yeah. um, and, and just being aware of that. That's really good advice. Thank you so much, Rick. Rick Ginsburg is a licensed psychologist who lives in Denver. He's the former president of the Colorado Psychological Association. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're going to listen now to a conversation I had with Colorado's Democratic Senator Michael Bennett. We recorded the interview before the attack on the grocery store in Boulder. Before we get to that, I want to share some of Senator Bennett's statement on the shooting. He says his heart goes out to the families of the Coloradans, including a Boulder police officer. He goes on to say it's long past time for Congress to take meaningful action to keep deadly weapons out of the wrong hands. 
Again, that statement from Senator Michael Bennett in response to the Boulder shooting. Now let's get to the conversation I had with him about the expanded child tax credit. It's part of the most recent round of national pandemic relief. It's intended to combat childhood poverty. It broadens the existing child tax credit by giving families up to $3,600 per child. It also allows more lower-income families to qualify for the tax credit. And instead of giving the money in one lump sum, it will be split into monthly payments. You've championed a child tax credit for years because you've said it would help lift children out of poverty. How does this improve their lives? Well, uh, having been superintendent of Denver Public Schools, I can tell you that kids living in poverty generally have much tougher time than kids that aren't living in poverty in this country. They suffer uh, worse health outcomes, worse educational outcomes. They have lower prospects of um, uh, of, of, of gaining high-paying jobs. They have higher prospects of having children of their own living in poverty. Estimates are that uh, childhood poverty costs the United States of America a trillion dollars a year. And we have one of the highest childhood poverty rates of any industrialized country in the world. And those are problems with childhood poverty, obviously. How does this child tax credit help? Well, the child tax credit will cut childhood poverty in America by almost 50 percent by increasing the child tax credit from $2,000 to $3,000, $3,600 for kids under the age of six. Uh, And it makes it fully refundable for the first time in history, which means that the poorest kids who have been excluded from the tax credit now will get the full benefit of that. So the idea is it's money back in the pockets of parents and guardians of these children. Exactly. In the case of Colorado, 90% of uh, children are going to benefit from this. Uh, over a million children altogether, 57,000 kids will be lifted uh, out of poverty, and 350,000 children in Colorado who don't benefit from the credit will benefit from it now. So for me, you know, having spent the last 10 years uh, traveling to every corner of our state and hearing parents in town hall say over and over and over again, we are working so hard, but we can't afford housing. We can't afford health care. We can't afford higher education or uh, early childhood education. We can't save. We can't start a college farm. Our kids, we worry, are going to live a more diminished life than the life that we lived. I hope this change in federal law is going to create just some measure of security for those families, and I and I think it will for them and um, millions of people across the country. You just alluded to a child tax credit that has existed for years. How is this child tax credit included in the American Rescue Plan different? It's very different. It's different in in size because it's no longer two thousand dollars per kid; it's three thousand dollars per kid. So it's fully a third bigger. It is fully refundable, which means that the poor kids that were excluded believe it or not, because their parents didn't earn enough money to qualify for the credit, now will be eligible for the credit. And it will be paid out in a monthly basis, which is different from the current credit, which is paid out on an annual basis. So I think that's going to allow families to have a much smoother cash flow throughout the year that will help them pay their monthly bills uh, more easily. And why make that monthly? Tell me a little bit more about why that was important to you rather than having a lump sum. That's, that's very, it's been very important. It was actually in 
my original bill, uh, and I'm very, very glad the Biden administration included it here because families don't spend money on an annual basis. Families spend money on a daily basis, and they've got to pay their bills on a monthly basis. And then you're trying to decide how to hold on to your to, to pay your rent or to pay your uh, for food and to, to pay your mortgage. That that does that's it, this will enable them to be able to do that in a in a way that I think is much more consistent with the way families live their lives. You've wanted to pass this expansion of the CTC for years, just like the minimum wage increase. How did this end up as part of the American Rescue Plan, but the minimum wage increase fell by the wayside? It's this very interesting question. I I, um, uh, I Sherrod Brown and Cory Booker and I spent all, the entire weekend, the last weekend, lobbying the White House to, to put it in. Rosa DeLauro from Connecticut in the House did as well, and I'm very glad that they did. Um, I don't know. I can't explain. I guess I guess the answer, actually, I do have an answer on the minimum wage, which is that the parliamentarian uh, said that we couldn't do it with reconciliation, uh, which was the procedure that we were using to pass the bill. But this provision uh, passed the parliamentarian's muster and therefore was included in the bill. This tax credit, it doesn't apply to everyone. The law stipulates that it only applies to children who are U.S. citizens or lawful residents. Does that mean that the child tax credit is cutting out a large part of the population of people who are very susceptible to childhood poverty? Well, it has. It's it's written to be consistent with existing law with respect to Social Security numbers and, and ITN numbers. And so I think we made progress there. But uh, you're right. There's there's more for us to do. Many Republicans, they want to expand benefits for children, but some are opposed to this child tax credit because they say it costs too much. And since it's not tied to income, it disincentivizes work. How do you answer those concerns? Well, first of all, um, let me say that this provision polls incredibly well with the American people. So 95 percent of Democrats support it. 73 percent of Republicans support it. So I think it actually does have bipartisan support, even if Washington Republicans mostly have not been able to support it yet. With respect to it costs too much money, childhood poverty costs a trillion dollars a year. This costs a hundred billion dollars a year to cut childhood poverty in half. Columbia University has already put a study out that says that they think the society is going to get an 8x return on this money annually as a result of of this, which just makes sense to me because childhood poverty is so expensive to our society and so damaging to kids. It's why, by the way, I am very happy that this country is no longer simply going to tolerate having, you know, among the worst levels of income inequality and of childhood poverty of any country in the industrialized world. I mean, that's crazy for us to accept it as a permanent reality. And until this bill was passed, that's how it was being uh, that's how it was being accepted. And on the point about a dissent, of, of disincentive for working, I, the data and the studies are very clear that countries that have a, a, a benefit like this for children actually have higher workforce participation rates than the United States. The United States has among the lowest participation rates in the in the in the industrialized world, and there's a reason for that in this context, which is we have made it so hard to be to 
to be poor and to work in this country, you know, and this is going to make it a little easier for people to bring in a little bit more money to help support their kids to be able to pay for a babysitter so they can stay at work to fix a car so they can drive to work. And I think we're going to see moms in particular who have had to make the choice of uh, quitting their job because they can't afford childcare for their kid have the chance to stay on in a job and, and, and have an increasing income over time. So I think people that say that have a, don't have a grasp on what American poverty looks like and, and the strides that other countries have taken to eliminate poverty and increase workforce participation rates in their country. It's interesting you said that the country is no longer going to tolerate high rates of childhood poverty. Tell me what you mean by that. I mean that we we I think that we were treating it like it was just a feature of American life or a feature of the American economy and I don't accept that. That's why I've been working on this for so many years and it's the reason, you know, I came out of being superintendent of the Denver Public Schools believing very strongly that the amount of childhood poverty we have in this country is is really an indictment of of us. And uh and, it, and, and we didn't have to accept it, and we don't have to accept it. And, and I think what I meant by that is that I believe, in some sense, you know, we, we were getting to a point where people didn't believe that government could ever do anything useful for them, that it was all focused just on special interests or on the wealthiest Americans or on the biggest corporations. And now we've passed something that's the most progressive piece of tax legislation that's actually passed in generations and generations. It's the biggest reduction of childhood poverty in the history of the United States. And I think it's evidence, it's a demonstration that we don't have to accept things the way they are. And we've got a lot of work ahead of us from healthcare to climate to infrastructure investment to, uh, to, to trying to end childhood poverty, which ultimately is what I would like to do. And this shows that it's possible. Now, the expansion of the child tax credit in the American Rescue Plan is temporary, and it will end next year. Additionally, the monthly payments will only last for six months. What happens after those six months? Well, we, I think we have to make it permanent, and I believe there is a coalition uh, that's coming together around this provision uh, that will make it permanent. Last weekend, the uh, White House Chief of Staff, Ron Klain, said we should make it permanent. Chuck Schumer Last week said we should make it permanent. My friend Mitt Romney, who's a Republican, has a version of this bill that's actually more generous than the tax credit that I put forward, uh, except I don't love the pay-fors that he has in it. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for for negotiation, for debate, uh, and to create an opportunity, maybe even in the next reconciliation package, to make this permanent. Senator, thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. Democratic Senator Michael Bennett on the expanded child tax credit that passed as part of the American Rescue Plan. When we come back, can state lawmakers find common ground on legislation that relates to climate change? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Military service gave John Evans the purpose he wanted in life. 
After two overseas deployments, though, what he witnessed started to catch up with him. And that's that's the hold it had on me. Yeah. You know, I had no comprehension of the grip drinking and drugs had on me. Addiction and PTSD. John found his way back through recovery. His story this week on Back From Broken, wherever you get your podcasts. With support from CU Anschutz, Department of Psychiatry. Climate change and what to do about it. It's a priority for Governor Polis and state lawmakers, but can they find common ground? Let's check in, check in on Purplish, our politics podcast from CPR News. Climate reporter Sam Brash joins public affairs reporters Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny. Early in his campaign for governor of Colorado, Jared Polis asked voters a series of kind of weird questions. Do you like chocolate? Do you like coffee? What about corn? Or seafood? Yeah. Or apples? Or water? Yeah. <laughs> if you're like me, the answer is yes. But if we don't act on climate change, all of this will soon be unaffordable or non-existent. When you combine a pitch like that with his years of activism against fracking, this has become a big part of Polis' image as the governor of Colorado. But that image is going to be put to the test in the next couple of months. Lawmakers have some ambitious ideas on climate this legislative session, and it's already resulting in some interesting tension between Governor Polis and the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Yeah, Democratic lawmakers really want to hold Polis to account on his promises on climate change. And we might even see some legislation that could change how you heat your home and how you cook your food. Wow. And it'll protect my corn, I assume. It could. (laughs) You two have been watching Colorado politics longer than I have. And before we actually get into this current conflict, the current legislative session, I was hoping that you could explain more about Jared Polis's climate backstory, which is actually kind of interesting. And, you know, he's at the center of all this. If you want to go back, a good starting point might be 2013, 2014. That's when Jared Polis was a congressman for Colorado's 2nd District, which includes Boulder. And the story goes that Polis found a drill rig outside one of his vacation homes in Weld County. We don't even know what is going on. We don't know what chemicals are like there in these trucks and drums at the foot of our driveway. This is a video that Polis made where he discovers the drill rig. Some companies, Sundance Energy, I think they're an Australian company that's doing Sam, if you remember at the time, I know a lot of us were saying, note to energy industry, do not put a drilling rig next to powerful member of Congress's home. (laughs) Yeah, could have done more research. (laughs) Why? What, What do you do? Well, what happened was Polis started working behind the scenes and in front of the scenes to champion and actually finance, which is probably the more important part, two Mm. anti-fracking ballot initiatives. Those proposals could have curtailed a lot of energy development along the front range. Well, tell us what became of those. Yeah, I mean, the result was that uh, he pulled those initiatives in a deal with Governor Hickenlooper. Wait, hang on. So Polis didn't actually follow through with those ballot initiatives. Right. He backed off in a deal with Governor Hickenlooper. Yeah, so what they did is they set up a task force that would look at recommendations and put it forward to the next legislature. So there, there was a pretty big rift among Democrats that year. It was heading into a very big election where Hickenlooper was up for re-election. Colorado had a competitive U.S. Senate race. Mm. So it was going to be a huge, costly, brutal political fight that they did avoid. And it set up this pretty, you know, tricky reputation for Polis on the environment. On the one hand, he was seen as a champion of environmental issues, especially uh, on these sort of like NIMBY politics of oil and gas development where drilling can and can't happen. 
But by pulling back, a lot of the activists who really cared about that became very skeptical of Governor Polis. And a lot of the environmental community is still very skeptical of him today. That conflict from 2014 kind of seems like it's resurfacing a bit now from what I've been hearing from you, Sam. But before we get to that, what is he what has he actually done as governor? Uh, has he lived up to any of that that big message from the campaign commercial we heard earlier? Yeah, I mean, I think it's good to take these issues separately, right? So on the oil and gas thing, Absolutely. He passed this bill in 2019 called SB 181, Hmm. uh, which gave a lot more control to cities and counties over exactly where and how oil and gas development happens. Hmm. And when he signed that bill, he famously said, this will end the fracking wars in Colorado, which I think everyone kind of snickered at, like obviously. (laughs) Ambitious. But at least in this legislative session, I think it is really important to note that oil and gas development is not the number one environmental issue at all. If if you want to understand that, you Which is a change from the past. (laughs) It's a huge change from the past, Hmm. right? People are finally really talking about climate change, about reducing emissions from all kinds of economic sectors other than oil and gas. And that really, uh, if you want to understand that story, you got to go to another bill, which he signed in 2019, called Colorado's Climate Action Plan. And that laid out Hmm. goals for greenhouse gas reductions in the state. Mm -hmm. Uh, According to the law, and this is law, Colorado has to reduce its emissions 26% by 2025, 50% by 2030, 90% by 2050. All of that's compared to uh, what emissions were in 2005. That's where the action is really going to be is how do you make that happen? Sam, how on track is Colorado to accomplish this? And, And I guess just how difficult will it be? It's going to be really difficult. So after signing that bill, uh, he did release this roadmap for how Colorado was going to get there. And it included a lot of modeling from these environmental consultants. And what they found is if you take Colorado's current emissions trajectory, and if you factor in some of the environmental regulations that have already been passed as of 2019, Mm -hmm. we're about halfway to that 2030 goal. Uh, But getting the rest of the way there is going to require a lot of other policies that are sort of hinted at in that same climate. Roadmap. What does that mean? Where else can you clamp down on on carbon emissions? I mean, we know this, right? Like the state has a big inventory of where it thinks all the greenhouse gas emissions in mm. the state are coming from. Traditionally, the biggest piece of Colorado's emissions pie, if you want to think about it as a pie, was the electricity sector, you know, power plants, coal-fired mm-hmm. power plants. As of last year, that changed. Now the biggest piece of that pie is transportation. And so you can pretty quickly realize it's a lot harder to tackle transportation than the electricity sector. I mean, these are big power plants. You just have like one huge smokestack that you have to worry about, (laughs) as opposed to millions and millions of car tailpipes. So transportation is a really big one. And then the other really big one is buildings, which again, are are not one big entity. There's Mm -hmm. all kinds of property owners in the state who might have to change the way they heat their buildings or pipe gas to stoves for cooking, stuff like that. So it seems like this ladder push to finally reach that goal is where it's going to be the most challenging, really. I I want to call it a final push. I mean, this is the whole burrito. Colorado has a really long way to go. It's it's nowhere close to reducing emissions in this way. Where do they go from here? The state's gotten part of the way there with big cuts in the energy sector, Excel, utilities committed to some big carbon reductions. What comes next? What are we talking about? Well, to get the rest of the way there, Colorado is going to have to tackle tons of other economic sectors like buildings, like transportation. And that's what we're expecting to come up this legislative session. 
what actually are you hearing? We haven't seen a real big climate bill this year, but we know that one might be coming. What are you hearing? What are they going to try to do, especially from the progressive wing of the party? The progressive wing in the party is very interested in holding Governor Polis to his promises on climate change and actually giving the state some teeth to reduce emissions. Mm -hmm. So uh, Democratic Senator Faith Winter is the person leading the charge on this. And she's coming out with a plan that, you know, is kind of the Colorado's Climate Action Plan Part 2. And what she says it would do, and we haven't seen details on this, is broadly give the state's Air Quality Control Commission, which generally worries about air pollution, more power to tackle greenhouse gas emissions, more funding, more staff, and possibly also take some of the goals that Governor Polis laid out in his climate roadmap for each economic sector and maybe toss that into actual law, codify it in legislation. Do you think people will notice the changes more if some of this stuff passed? Uh, Yeah, I think that there's a bevy of legislation on its way that would affect how people live their daily lives. I've heard that there's uh, bills coming to do more around benchmarking big commercial buildings and at the same time pushing utilities to offer incentives to help people electrify everything. The idea here is that as Colorado transitions to more and more renewable energy, you need electric cars, electric stoves, Mm -hmm. electric furnaces to take advantage of all that new renewable carbon-free power. The issue is that right now... Places like Excel Energy don't really teach customers a lot about these new electric technologies, don't offer as many incentives as some Democratic lawmakers would like to see. So I'm expecting legislation that would push them to do more of that. For an individual person, that means that your stove in the future could be an electric stove. Your your furnace might not be gas-fired. It could be a heat pump, which is more like a refrigerator working in reverse. And importantly... You know, your gas bill might go way down, but your electric bill could go way up. So are they going to come to my 1960s house and tear out my gas stove so I can't cook with my iron skillet anymore? (laughs) No, they're not going to do that. I think there's lots of oil and gas officials who would like frame it that way. I think that's a real possibility. Um, And I've even seen a super PAC named Protect My Gas um, advocating here in Colorado. But no, I think what they would actually do is probably require some benchmarking for big commercial buildings. So people and the government have a better idea of how those buildings are contributing to climate change. And then maybe do more to make it so big utilities like Excel educate people and offer incentives for electrification. So installing electric stoves, installing electric heat pumps, stuff like that. And I bet in the long run they could talk about regulations for new builds, new construction as well. Yeah, and and that's a really interesting point. So uh, in California, you have places like Berkeley, California, which just banned gas hookups in new homes. Mm -hmm. Um, In Colorado here, cities have taken a much more careful approach uh, with building codes that all but require electrification in new buildings and, and make it really impractical to install new gas hookups probably. But they haven't gone all the way there and said, hey, you just can't put a new gas hookup in new buildings. Well, let me let me zoom us out now. How does that compare to what other states are doing? Are, are other states trying to break off piece by piece and set these kind of regulations? Uh, other states have taken these economy-wide approaches. And probably the most well-known one is a cap-and-trade system where you permit companies to release a certain amount of greenhouse gas emissions. 
and let them trade for the right to do that, trade Mm -hmm. these permits in a statewide market, and then reduce the overall number of those permits over time to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. That's called an economy-wide approach. And that's something we know Polis doesn't support because he doesn't think Colorado's economy is big enough where that makes sense. So if the governor's not on board with these wider economic policies, Mm -hmm. do you think he'll be okay with this more limited approach? I know we haven't seen a bill yet this session, but... I don't know if he's seen the bill yet this session. Lawmakers are really going at this one on their own. So I think we got to wait and see if he comes out hard against this. I think Polis understands that a lot of his appeal to voters was being the guy that we heard from at the top who really cares about climate change, who's really invested in this goal for 100% renewable energy by 2040. So he has to be really careful in how he might fight climate legislation. So I think we'll see. We talked about how divided Democrats have been on how to move forward on some of this, but where do Republicans stand? You know, that's a really interesting question, and I don't think we totally get the whole picture at this point. I would note one important piece of information was a op-ed in the Denver Post from Republican Senator Ray Scott, who represents Grand Junction. He's a mm-hmm. state senator. He's somebody who has cast doubt on climate science in the past and has been called out for his views on climate change. He wrote an op-ed saying, like, climate change is real and Republicans need to be a big part of coming up with solutions. And the ones he really focused on were nuclear energy and hydropower. So he kind of leaned into that supply side, one big technological fix, which is where Colorado, like you said, has made a lot of its progress so far. But... I'm curious if this Democratic legislation moves forward and you talk about giving the state more teeth in all these different sectors. I have a feeling this is going to end up just like this podcast being pretty wonky, but very (laughs) consequential. Yeah, it's really wonky. But I think that at the end of the day, it it actually is going to affect people's homes and cars. They're they're all going to change or they're all going to have to change if Colorado wants to actually meet its climate goals. One statistic that really stands out to me on all this stuff, to meet Colorado's climate goals, these models the state had commissioned says that 60% of sales of new heating equipment, like furnaces for building, mm-hmm. need to be electric heat pumps by 2030. 60%, right? So like- huh. And what is it now? It's like nothing. I mean, people hmm. don't trust this technology, right? This idea of an air conditioner that works in reverse to heat your homes. A lot of people are skeptical mm-hmm. that those can work in cold climates or they've just never heard of them or their home HVAC systems aren't set up to do that. And the state's saying, like, we need to rapidly make this the norm, not like a little nerdy piece of what some wealthy dude in Boulder wants to build into his home because it's a neat new technology, but like ubiquitous. Can this happen if you don't have a lot of Republicans on board and people from a lot of different political backgrounds? I think that's where Polis would come down and say, like, a lot of the reason that people are going to adopt these technologies have nothing to do with ideology and a lot to do with business. Ideally, you make these technologies cheaper and they're just Mm -hmm. what makes sense. That's certainly what we've seen happen with renewable energy. I think the question is, is that going to happen on the the demand side as well with the, you know, the heat pumps and the electric cars and the electric stoves. Let's go beyond climate for a second. While we've got Sam here, wanted to touch on another issue that has statewide interest, at least. Sam's kind of become CPR's designated wolf reporter. As we know, voters approved the reintroduction of these animals in certain parts of the state. And I know there's been a handful of follow-up bills trying to figure out how exactly the state will do that to, again, bring the wolves back to certain parts of Colorado. 
But what's going on with that? Where are we at in terms of wolf reintroduction? Yeah, right now, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, which is the state wildlife agency, is going to start holding a number of meetings, figuring out how are we actually going to do this wolf reintroduction. At the same time, the legislature, it looks like it is willing to get involved as well. There have been Mm -hmm. a couple of bills so far. One would have said that Colorado Parks and Wildlife, which is a cash-funded agency, should have an its own separate pot of money from the general fund mm. to to do this wolf reintroduction effort. Okay. It looks like that got blocked at a democratically controlled commission, along with another Republican bill. And this one is some brilliant legislative trolling, if you want to think about it, oh. uh, that says if, if you want to introduce wolves, you can only do it in communities that voted for wolf reintroduction. <laughs> so, so wolves Denver. in Denver, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, let's, let's uh, release them on the 16th Street Mall. You guys love wolves so much. We'll have fun. We've definitely seen an urban-rural divide on this issue specifically. So the wolves are not going to be reintroduced in an urban area, but the front range and the urban parts of the state voted for reintroduction. Barring a couple examples, the rural parts of the state did not vote for this. And so some of the lawmakers I've talked to who represent those areas felt like it's all well and good for someone in an urban area to think this sounds like a cool idea. They don't maybe have to live with the economic consequences or depending upon ranching and tourism, you know, people are concerned about how this may impact their livelihoods. Yeah, I think it's also important to keep in mind, though, that wolves on both sides of the political spectrum are very powerful symbols, political symbols. You know, I think on the right, it's become another sign of how Democrats or urban voters are trying to trample on their way of life. Mm -hmm. I think for more left-leaning people who support wolf reintroduction, they offer this promise of restoring ecosystems. And that gets really tricky when you have a very thorny issue of how are you going to actually go about getting wolves, finding out where they should live, reintroducing them, figure out how ranchers should be compensated if they do lose things, figure out how they prove whether wolves killed their livestock at all. And so I think that's sort of the challenge that I'm up against is how do you step back a little bit and just say, like, there's all these crazy politics going on, but the actual problem ahead of the state is huge Mm. and they have a lot to figure out. And it's like the concept, should we do this or not, was almost the easy part. Right. Yeah, that's definitely the easy part. So I really wanted to share something with the two of you. A moment where I said, wait, Wait, what? what? This is finally happening. I could not believe it. And it gives me a chance to play some audio that Sam actually recorded when he was a legislative reporter with me before he switched to the climate beat. And we'll just tee it up here. It's like nothing I've ever heard at the Capitol. That was a bank of five computers reading a bill at 650 Mm -hmm. words per minute. Um, That was in response to a Republican stalling tactic. They asked for bills to be read out loud at length. And so this has been in the courts since 2019. The Colorado Supreme Court ruled that you cannot read bills at 650 words per minute when someone asks that a bill be read at length. They Mm -hmm. said that violates the Constitution. What, you guys couldn't understand that? I I couldn't understand it. But it did the Democrats lose, though? Because if I remember right, the reason the Republicans were trying to have bills read at length was the slow down that oil and gas legislation we were talking about earlier. Right? <laughs> that was why. Yeah, that was that, exactly why. That was which ultimately passed. So like they, they had one ace to play and they played it, which was wild and sounded just completely insane. So I wasn't surprised to see the Supreme Court decision, but... Well, what was interesting about the Supreme Court decision was 
They basically said, you can't do what Democrats did here, uh-huh. but they didn't say what you should do. But this is still a tool Republicans can use this session, and they've used it several times, even as a threat to get more negotiating power, uh-huh. because especially at the end of the session when the deadlines are really tight, if you ask a bill to be read at length and it can take days or sometimes a week, depending upon the length of the bill, that can derail all the other legislation. So Republicans and whichever parties in the minority now has this additional tool that's been preserved, if you will. I know. And I feel like we have this moment of people actually caring about parliamentary procedure because of what's happening with the filibuster at the national level. Right, Um, exactly. And and I do wonder if we could ever see something like this in Congress, Congress, as we move ahead with that, because there's talk of it becoming a talking filibuster, right? Oh, gosh. Where they actually have to talk. Where they actually have to talk. So saying filibuster. Maybe Colorado is like leading the way here. I think so. I mean, hardball parliamentary stuff is certainly... More and more in vogue. And that's what we just heard. CPR climate reporter Sam Brash joining public affairs reporters Binta Berkland and Andrew Kinney for Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Hear this and other episodes at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and at CPR.org. Half a million people have died in the United States since the pandemic hit the country one year ago. To remember some of those who lost their lives to COVID, NPR has been sharing the music they loved and hearing stories from their friends and family. They call the series Songs of Remembrance. One of these tributes caught our attention. It's for Frank Wynn of Aurora, who died in November. He was 40. Here's his younger sister, Kim Wynn, remembering her brother. Growing up, my brother and I were very close As children, we bickered, but he was always there for me. As I think about my brother, Frank, and just reminisce about my memories of him, um, a lot of it is centered around music. He and I, growing up when we were in high school, we would drive around in his car, and he always had something playing at full blast, and a lot of it was electronic music, but in particular, Depeche Mode. At that time, Ultra came out, and he just ate it. And I think that was uh, a very, very pivotal time in his life when that album came out, and it hit so many notes for him. I think that my brother was definitely the type of person that when he was passionate about something, he wanted to share it with everybody that he could. I remember a few years back, there was a karaoke party. It was a busy karaoke bar in downtown Denver. And the first song that he performed was Walking in My Shoes by Depeche Mode. He did not care what the crowd was feeling. He just wanted to do that song. As a little sister watching my older brother go up and perform, that was a funny thing to see, uh, a little embarrassing too. (laughs) 
couple of days after he had passed away, I remember just having a few moments to myself and I had my music streaming just on random songs and Depeche Mode's Home came up and you know the, the song has this big orchestral wind up to the chorus where it says and I thank you for bringing me here for showing me home for showing me home for singing these tears finally I found that I belong here It transported me back to those high school years, being in the car, listening to the song at full blast. And I felt like it was my brother talking to me. And I felt like it was his way of sending a message and just trying to figure out where I go from here, where my family goes from here, and what we do to honor his life and legacy. That song helped me because it felt like a message, him letting us know that things were going to be okay, or at least he was okay. Kim Wynn remembering her brother Frank, who died from COVID-19. The tribute is part of NPR's Songs of Remembrance. We'll leave you today with Frank Wynn's favorite, Home by Depeche Mode. Thanks for joining us today, and thanks to the team who brings this show to air. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News.